show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. So the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. So there is no thriving economy without environmental or social protections. I think we have it flipped. It's not as if we can exist without our environment or that anything can thrive without having a functioning ecological ecosystem, a social ecosystem. The idea of sacrifices is, it's a narrative that really has no basis. That's Marilyn Waite sustainable business expert, author, and program officer in environment at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, I am excited to have this next conversation um, with someone who I really appreciate as a woman of color in the finance sector. Um, She is the program officer in environment at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Marilyn Waite. Marilyn, how are you? I'm hanging in there, thanks. How are you doing? Doing good. And I know when we were getting started, you had a song. I'm not okay. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. For it's this very moment. appropriate, right? Yes. Yeah. And being okay with not being okay. Yes. And being okay with not being okay. Yes. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is. Um, man, well, uh, let me just read a little bit of the bio, because you have a phenomenal background, and I want people to know who they're listening to. So Marilyn Waite leads the Climate and Clean Energy Finance Portfolio at the Hewlett Foundation, and also writes a monthly column. She is an innovator. She is someone who has been on the cutting edge. Um, She has worked with many organizations and on many boards, um, literally looking at the intersection of science and policy in this country and around the world. She has lectured um, on sustainable business, um, she has talked regarding in this country and in Beijing and literally all over. And clearly with all of that, she holds a master's degree with distinction in engineering for sustainable development from the University of Cambridge and a Bachelor of Science degree in civil and environmental engineering, magna cum laude, from Princeton University. So she's a tiger, y'all. And so <laughs> her vision is a world where sustainability values of social cohesion and environmental consciousness, the intergenerational equity and economic health drive decision-making and business practices, particularly as it affects not all people, but definitely for people of color. But with saying all of that, um, cause that's, that's the bio and, I mean, it's, listen, y'all, I mean, there's so, so much more that, you know, I could have said in that. But Marilyn, who is Marilyn Waite? Who am I? Good question. So a global citizen, first and foremost, I'm not interested in borders. 
um, of Jamaican heritage, French national, U.S. born, all of those things come together. Um, a very curious person, an engineer by training, as you mentioned, sustainable finance, an investor by trade. And I'm a person with opinions. No, that's very succinct. And I think so I asked this question. It's funny. I had Jackie Patterson on. Um, and for those who want to hear, yes, yes, it was, oh man, if you missed that conversation, please definitely go to, uh, think100climate.com to hear all of the amazing guests. Uh, but Jackie mentioned something about how her background is her father was from Jamaica and her mother was from Chicago, the Mississippi. <laughs> and she talked. She talked about uh, patriotic schizophrenia. Do you feel that way sometimes in your background? Huh. I wonder what she meant by that. Um, I can, but I can relate to what that might mean. Yes, and I do know you also have Caribbean heritage. I do. My parents are both from Trinidad. What she meant, just so you know, is that she was talking about how her mom and please was a awesome conversation. Please check it out uh, for those who are listening. It was one in which her mom sometimes was angry and what came from an African-American background. And But her father, being from Jamaica, seemed to be happy, but he also come from a different background and of of understanding what this country meant. But those those things would clash. And that, that clashing made her. And it also made her understand also from a worldview, a different perspective of this country and also the injustice in this country. And so I guess for you, you mentioned how you're a global citizen. Is that what you mean sometimes having that, uh, that, that essence of knowing what it means to be an American, but also knowing what it means to not be an American? Oh, absolutely. And not starting from a place of this particular country or location is better than another country or location. Right. That there are pros and cons in various places um, and there's no superiority to this country. So it is it is definitely meaningful. Um, I definitely identify with a lot of the teachings of Marcus Garvey. Right. And, and there's definitely a connection between the diaspora, as we see now um, globally um, and the United States and what happens in the United States. So I think it's, it's a, an ability to have internal eyes and external eyes at the same time. That's very powerful. And also, I mean, there's people who, if you have not looked into or heard of Marcus Garvey, this is your moment to literally make sure after you hear this discussion to, to do that. Because um, I think there are some very important things that uh, Marcus Garvey gave us to to look at, and I was actually just listening to Kwame Ture, uh, uh, Toby Carmichael, who also was from Trinidad. This, this, this is my Trinidad shout out moment, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and he was mentioning how as passionate as Marcus Garvey was for Africa, he never visited Africa, mm. and it was just very powerful because sometimes we think we have to go someplace to connect. Um, but Marcus Garvey showed us that you don't have to go there to not only not only not connect um, just physically, but to be there spiritually, but also passionate about 
the injustice. Do you feel that way a lot of times for those of us who are in this country that sometimes we fail to connect the dots with those who are um, across the seas? I do. I I think um, I've said that a global citizen doesn't have to leave their village. You know, I lived in Madagascar, for example, um, in the South, which is drought prone, um, quite impoverished. And there are people there that I met that have are very globally minded um, and they haven't le- left their village. So I think it's a bit deeper than just the moving across borders. And we know people who go across the border and are not curious and open and what that leads to as well. So I do think it's, it's a lot of this is about mentality and approach and being open and curious. Your work has been around climate finance. Um, and I think it's, I'm, it's so important because I don't think we get to talk about that side of the work as much within our climate movement. Um, and so for those who don't know, uh, simply what is climate finance? So I like to define it as finance that's used for greenhouse gas mitigation in particular. So independent of a sector or geography, if a financing or investing is related to reducing the tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, then it is for climate action. And that's, that's a simple way of thinking about it. And what's the relationship between climate finance, racial justice, and climate justice? So finance and investing for climate or, or anything else that has to be solved has to benefit all, right? Not just those that are currently benefiting from capital markets and private investment opportunities. So if the whole point of climate finance is to solve climate change, then it can't be done by focusing on a handful of people globally. It has to be done with the masses. And the masses, the global majority, are people of color. Um, And unfortunately, um, people of color globally and in the United States bear the brunt of climate impacts, uh, are more likely to live within uh, a short distance to a coal plant and to other polluting infrastructure. Um, So this is about all hands on deck. And so that financing has to flow to those communities most impacted by climate change and who have the best solutions to deal with climate change. So it's, and also benefit, quite frankly, from the opportunities in investing in climate solutions as well, right? So it's both sides. It's inhibiting that pollution that's impacting low-income communities and communities of color globally and nationally. And it's also enabling a benefit, a financial benefit, a return to those communities as well. Why do you think in our climate movement, we create these silos so that we put climate finance in this silo. We put the issue of climate advocacy in a silo, literally different types of movements within the movements from uh, pipeline fights to uh, mountain removal to fracking to environmental justice. Um, why do we, why do you think we put our movement in silos and where does climate finance and how can climate finance break those silos? So I think at its root, it's, we are still quite segregated in unfortunate ways. Um, in our training, in our career paths, in our, um, in our neighborhoods, you know, our circles. So we, we, we are too segregated and that inhibits us from thinking systemically and actually solving this problem because we're, 
make no mistake, we are failing at solving climate change. And so I think that is the root of the problem and climate finance in particular, because it is sector agnostic, really. Ultimately, we're applying investment principles across agriculture and transportation and energy and buildings and all of the solution sets, um, breaking down those silos and seeking to mobilize this capital and, and deal with the gap that we currently have. Um, and so I think it can speak to all of these sectors that people find themselves in. And I think it's also, um, you know, make no mistake, a lot of the population is financially illiterate. And I don't think that's by accident, right? I think it's quite intentional. And there are many different ways of thinking about power, but for sure, money and capital is powerful. And we see that that's an engine to our economic activity. And so the more people know, right, the more literate we become in finance and investing, the more we clearly see how critical it is. And so I think um, across the movement, we have to improve financial literacy and investing literacy. And that will also enable us to see those linkages and take action so that we can solve this problem. Marilyn, how is that done? So I know many, and this is, I'm speaking specifically to people of color and um, indigenous communities um, who there's, there's a different type of financial education that is happening in the homes from little, Like there's just a, we need to survive <laughs> and, uh, and pay the bills. And then maybe there's some connection. They may say, turn that light, turn that light off, uh, close that uh, 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 freezer door. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uh, doing AC for the whole house, so to speak, or whatever the case may be. Um, but the other kind of education you're talking about, as far as understanding how money works, how do you how do you see that happening in our communities? So a number of ways. I mean, we have to bring finance to the masses, and I think there are a number of ways it's already happening. One is through disruption. Um, and with what some people call challenger banks, for example. Um, so the mainstream, um, let's say the, the largest uh, five to six banks in the United States, um, you know, they have a track record of environmental degradation and social discrimination. Um, there are challenger banks to that um, that are getting their message across um, at the community level um, there are credit unions. You know, the credit union movement has it's been around for a long time. Cooperative banks, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. They, um, ever since the last financial crisis of 2008, 2009, they saw a resurgence in demand. So people trust, I mean, people across the board, over 115 million Americans are members of credit unions. So whether you're in rural, urban, um, you know, old, young, no matter where you are, conservative, uh, progressive, that's a trustworthy institution. And so enabling that kind of institution to finance clean energy and energy efficiency for all is one of the levers that we are relying on in our work. Um, and so that's just one example of improving uh, the financial literacy and the ability to finance at a distributed level, which is what we need for climate action in addition to large infrastructure. So, there's there's that disruption happening. You know, there are uh, challenger banks, challenger um, asset management firms 
that have a retail investing and a retail banking focus. And so um, I think we also need the movements and those that are on the ground advocating to um, to also raise the awareness about these institutions and their, um, you know, what makes them different and their ability to solve these problems in ways that have not been done before. So I think there, there's a lot in that, um, that disruptive side, that advocacy side, that awareness building side. Um, and I think one of the positive sides of our digital economy is the ability to get messages across at scale. And so leveraging the technology and the, the messages um, right now is, um, is much easier than before because of our digital platforms. I was uh, talking with Tara Hauska, and, um, and, and one of the things there that's interesting is she mentioned to me how when we did a protest early this year, and we were, they were protesting at the same time, and they were protesting at the U.S. Capitol, um, and they got arrested. They, they didn't even get zip ties. And she was saying it was, you know, another number of reasons for that. They had celebrities there, a number of reasons. I um, was with the Stop the Money, Camp, Stop the Money uh, campaign, uh, and we got arrested in a bank, the other capital. Um, and we got put into the, we got put into the jail. <laughs> we got, they, they was like, hold up, wait a minute. And they put us in the jail for a, for a while. And so I guess that goes to at Hewlett, your funding focus is really growing the banking sector and the banks that are good on climate. So overseas, the money pipeline is to stop money going into the bad banks. So what are good climate banks and, and how can we campaign to move our money into them? So in the U.S., there are over 5,000 credit unions and there are over 5,000 banks. So there are no shortage of options. Um, two things to look out for. Uh, one, the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, GABV or GABV. Um, they list a number of banks. Um, their members have agreed to uh, environmental, social, and governance um, missions in addition, to the, in, in addition to their financial return missions. There's also B Corp, um, being a B Corp certified bank. So if you go on their site, you can find all of the banks that have decided to um, become B Corp certified and all of that entails and being a benefit corporation and having that third party certification, again, agreeing to environmental and social metrics as a key de defining factors in addition to financial metrics. Um, in particular, I'll name a few um, disruptors, uh, challenger banks that are sustainable, you know, fossil fuel free, gun free, um, private prison free, all of those things. Um, they include Aspiration Bank, the Clean Energy Credit Union, Self-Help Credit Union, Amalgamated Bank, Beneficial State Bank, and the list goes on and on. But there are, they're out there. Um, there are a few websites. So GABV is one. B Corp is another. There's a website called Mighty Deposits. That's another. My own website has a list of these banks um, and credit unions. And come September, they will also be, September 2020, there will also be an, a third-party site for banking on good that will list a coalition of these banks that are on the right side of history. That's exciting. 
It is. Um, we have solutions. Yeah, we, just, exactly. we just don't have yeah. problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing. In that, black banks have been decreasing. And how does that fit into this scenario? So I know the Banking on Good campaign, which is currently in stealth mode, um, they should be launching in September 2020. Um, they are reaching out to Black-owned banks and Black-led banks um, to become a part of that campaign. By, by nature of what those banks tend to lend to in finance, they would be climate friendly. They just maybe have not explicitly said so. So I think there's going to be a lot of natural alignment with the Black-owned banks and Black-led banks. I like that. I like that a lot. I think it's very important as we begin to broaden our movement. Um, but I want to say with climate finance, because I think there's some, there's been some things around climate finance. And I know that climate finance funds projects and mitigation and adaptation. And we also know that when you have misguided um, climate mitigation, it can sometimes make things worse. So I guess particularly to you, how, how can we center equity and the voices of frontline communities in climate finance? So I'm a big Project Drawdown fan. I don't know if you've covered Drawdown on the podcast yet. Um, I'm biased. I was a part of, of the initiative. But Drawdown essentially lists the top 80 to 100 solutions to solving climate change. So what we can do now and scale now to meet the Paris Agreement, keep our planet well below two degrees Celsius um, by 2050. And so there's in-depth modeling, financial and climate impact modeling done for each of those solutions across all of the sectors. And so I think, you know, there's no uh, large scale hydroelectric dams that are on that solution list. So really, if you zoom in on that list, you'll see things like plant-based diets. You'll see, of course, wind energy, offshore, onshore wind energy and solar, but you also see plant-based diets and regenerative agriculture and zero emissions freight and, and all the other parts of the economy that have to decarbonize for us to meet this goal. And so I think that is um, one way of centering equity is to center on the, you know, all of those solutions at not just one. And I would say, if you ask the people what they need, they will tell you. Um, and so if you actually, <laughs> if you actually ask people um, who are being impacted what needs to happen, they will tell you and they have very concrete answers and solutions. Um, one, one thing that has come um, you know, to the fore recently is regenerative agriculture. Um, there's an asset management group, uh, Robichaudi and Philipson. Um, they have done analysis around the nexus between climate justice and racial equity. And they found that industrial agriculture is a big problem with over half of carbon emissions coming from industrial agriculture. And this ties in with the drawdown analysis and that synthetic fertilizers are deeply tied to the fossil fuel industry. So it's not just the oil and gas industry. Um, and if we can, uh, you know, shift financing, you know, away from the high carbon emitters, not just on, not only in energy, but also in agriculture and transportation, then we can shift this. So um, the majority of farmers who are directly impacted by predatory practices of industrial ag are people of color in the global south. 
um, the labor force in the industrial food system are people of color who are har- who are who are working in harvesting and processing and retail and low paying jobs. I mean, we've seen what's happened in these meat packaging um, plants with COVID. Um, and six of the ten worst paying jobs in the U.S. are in industrial food systems. So, when you ask people, you, you tend to get you know real real solutions and real real answers. And so I think that has to be step one. Um, and we, the, the good news is that we have we have the list, we have the drawdown drawdown list, we have the investor list um, of this nexus between climate justice and racial justice. Um, and we need to do it. We need to shift the capital now. And we, when I say we, I mean at all levels. Us as bank holder, you know, we all have deposit accounts, bank accounts. Um, other savings, other investments as, you know, our retirement accounts, our 401ks, 403bs. So the consumer level, yes. Also, our small businesses, our medium-sized businesses can also line their capital with decarbonization. The large non-financial corporates. So if you, you know, just independent of industry, you have a balance sheet, you have employee benefits, you have um, your bank accounts, all of those things can be aligned with decarbonization. And then, of course, if you are a bank or asset manager, you can align and should be aligning for your own financial health uh, and that of your clients with decarbonization. So at all those levels and not, you know, last but not least, regu- you know, the regulators regulating the entire system, they also um, can implement new uh, policies and practices that move us on this path. I get so excited hearing that. I mean, what you just laid out there is, is so important. And I'm hopeful for those who are listening, because uh, the great thing about uh, this show is that it is broadcast uh, as the podcast is for everybody. Obviously, you can get the podcast whenever, but broadcast uh, to our good folks in New York and and our good folks in Washington, D.C. So I hope our folks in New York are paying Close attention to what Marilyn just said, because that is the roadmap to success. You mentioned, Marilyn, also about the Paris Agreement. And I know that at Hewlett, Hewlett has a long-term 2050 goal uh, to mobilize at least $1 trillion annually to support the interventions that further the goals of the Paris Agreement. So what are the focus areas and what's needed to do and accomplish this? So we're focusing on three parts of the world, three economies, China, the European Union with the 28 countries involved there and the United States. And that's where most of the missions um, emanate from globally, especially historically. And it's also where most of the world's capital resides. Um, So focusing, zooming in on those three markets what we're doing is twofold. One is innovative finance and the other is systemic decarbonization work across those three, three economies. So I'll, I'll break down what those two pillars mean. Um, we are looking at three pools of capital uh, for very specific reasons. So within those three economies, we're, we're focusing on venture capital uh, or high risk capital for lack of a better word. And that's because we still need to finance and implement activities that are not yet commercially viable for the full transition. So things like seasonal storage, storage that lasts for beyond four hours. Think about the monsoon season in India or 
um, the intensive periods of, of hurricanes or wildfires where we need to have this renewable energy lasts beyond when it's available. So that seasonal storage is an example of things that only this high risk capital can do. We can't expect a risk averse bank to take on that kind of um, financing activity. So venture capital is in focus. Um, Asset management is in focus, especially pension funds, insurance companies, and mutual funds. And that includes retirement funds. You know, there's over 130 trillion there in in that bucket globally. And finally, and most importantly, banking through the lending and credit ability. So banks are the only ones in the financial ecosystem that can actually uh, create money because of the deal they have with with the central banks. Um, And so banks, in terms of their loans and and debt, they represent 90% of available capital globally. And most most capital does not cross any border. So 80% of money sticks, you know, lies within a national border. And that's partly why, you know, poverty persists because the minute you cross the border, there's wow. there's all this perceived mm. risk, right? So if I'm a US-based mm. investor, um, I, the minute something goes across the border, I, I, don't, I know it less, right? I know the laws less, the, the culture less, the currency is different. All of that means I'm more likely just to stay at home, so to speak, than cross the border. So um, those, are the, those are the three pools of capital and focus. Now, innovative finance is really about proving to the market that something is bankable, investable, financeable. Um, it includes, for example, helping to capitalize a new clean energy credit union in the U.S. that's focusing on this lending and showing the other 5,000 credit unions how to do that kind of lending. It includes um, putting money into funds that are have a climate-first thesis. So, you know, they will invest in startups that uh, whose solution will mitigate a gigaton of carbon at scale. Um, it includes um, first loss, concessional, subordinate, however you want to call it, capital that entices uh, pension funds, other institutional investors, banks to do the kind of financing they really should be doing anyway, but to prove to them they have some kind of perceived risk that needs to be dealt with. And so we can have our capital play that role in the first instance. And in the second instance, we can move away, so to speak. And so anything that's, that's, that's the gist of the innovative finance bucket, which in a lot of it involves fund structures. And then the second bucket is systemic work. And in a nutshell, it's how do we embed this idea of carbon or GHG, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in financial transactions. Um, so that, you know, we, we know that what gets measured is managed and we're only measuring what matters to us. And right now our financial system is saying, you know what, this climate change thing doesn't matter because we're not measuring it systemically and systematically. And so how do we get carbon embedded into mortgage loans and car loans and um, project finance and corporate finance and bond issuances, all of it, so that we start to finance less and less of the carbon intensive activities and more and more of the green activities. So the dirty to clean framework, how do we move away from the dirty towards the clean? And we know that a lot of this is if we have the data, if it's being measured and disclosed, it will be managed towards what we perceive as to be better. You know, similar to why we measure things like return on equity and return on investment and interest rates. So we're doing those two things. We are, there's something called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials or PCAF, PCAF, that is working on the systemic side. Um, 
industry-led, so banks and asset managers coming together to measure and disclose um, their the carbon emissions of their loans and investments. And that's important because that really helps manage the system, like I said, away from the bad stuff towards the good stuff. And so the sustainable banks, the leadership banks and, and asset managers are you know, leading the way on that. And we hope to, that can grow um, and also you know, at some point become regulatory and mandatory so that we move the entire system along. Can that be done um, in the current atmosphere of policy that we're in now? Is that possible? I think it can be done. So that this particular initiative started in the Netherlands and, um, you know, had wide support across the industry and, of course, the government. Um, There is and now it's gone completely global. um, So African banks and Latin American banks and Asian banks and North American banks um, and European banks and asset managers are are, um, joining. And so what's inspiring about it is that the smallest, the most, the, the least resourced banks and credit unions are doing this in the United States, which means there's no excuse for any, any other institution, right? So if a small credit union in Missoula, Montana can do this, then surely JP Morgan Chase can. And so um, it's, I think it's proving that it's viable and policymakers really, um, you know, in order to manage the systemic risks, right, caused by climate change, it seems to be a no-brainer. You know, this is making headwinds. This is, you know, incorporated into some of the initial thinking at the Commodities Future Trading Commission. There's been a report, or a report is in the works, I should say. There's been some preliminary reports um, that this commission, which is um, bipartisan or nonpartisan or, you know, has representation from more than one political party, um, they've come out uh, with this climate risk committee um, that is uh, investigating uh, what they can do in order to manage this risk and uh, in order to manage that risk actually um, require this kind of accounting and, and measurement and disclosure, which is the, just the beginning of being able to, to, to deal with the problem. You know, Marilyn, we're often told often <laughs> told that we have to sacrifice the environmental and social protections to have a better economy. What's wrong with that argument? So the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Maybe I should repeat that. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. So there is no thriving economy without environmental or social protections. It's just, I think we have it flipped. It's not as if we can exist without our environment or that anything can thrive without having a functioning ecosystem, um, ecological ecosystem, uh, social ecosystem. So there, the, the idea of sacrifice is, is it, it's an interesting, it's a narrative that really has no basis. Um, it's kind of like, what's the point of making bil- you know, hundreds of billions if there's no planet to live on? <laughs> um. Uh, I think I remember seeing one time a sign at a protest that said there are no uh, jobs on a dead planet. Um, And I think that definitely is uh, kind of a a way of looking at that. Um, But I know you've written 
on this topic and also on the issue of sustainability. And your book, Sustainability at Work, is a guide to having a successful career paired with sustainability, bridging uh, sustainable development and career development. And you've also developed the SURF framework. And for those, SURF stands for Supply Chain and User Considerations that Address Sustainability Criteria. So how does the SURF apply to the sustainability concepts to multiple career situations? Yeah, so I wrote Sustainability at Work Careers that Make a Difference to really um, drive home the message and, and tell stories of people who were implementing the message that really if we want to transform our businesses, our society, our communities for sustainability you know, so that we can survive essentially and, and thrive, um, then it cannot just be something we do part-time or only in the home. Um, it has to be brought into our actual jobs and our careers. Um, and so the SURF framework, and I can break down each component, is, is really about addressing some of the gaps that persist when a company or an organization or a part of a government thinks about how to move along this trajectory and meet the sustainable development goals and things of that nature. So the S is supply chain. It is straightforward to address your four walls. So, you know, your water use, your energy use, your your food footprint, um, your money, all of these things within your four walls. But what are the wider impacts? You know, what is the supply chain involved in producing this particular product or service? And how can you um, move the entire system by in your procurement, essentially? And the procurement happens all of the time, independent of industry. Um, we, In order to deliver a certain outcome, we depend on other people in the ecosystem and other businesses and other organizations. So how, you know, what is the, the ask that you're asking of your suppliers? The U stands for user. So think about client, customer, beneficiary. How do they receive what you have to offer? So it's great that you made the most, you know, compostable doggy bag, for example, but is composting readily available for that consumer or customer? You know, can they actually place that in a way that makes that all of that effort that you, you know, you did to make that product um, worthwhile. Um, the R is, you know, it's really about people and communities, um, stakeholder relationships and relations um, beyond just your shareholders or your customers, but any entity in society that perceives itself as being impacted by your work. And then the F is for future generations, for that future orientation. And I think what differentiates sustainability from other frameworks is the focus on future generations. So it's not just about short-term goals or or gains. You actually are implementing something that will change for, for, and I think this, you know, in general, climate is an intergenerational problem in that um, right now we are setting our, we're setting the future generations on a path of doom. And that has to change. And I think that's part of the reason why you see this, you know, so many um, younger generations that are voicing serious concerns about climate. If you're just tuning in, we are talking to the amazing Marilyn Waite, who is a sustainable business expert, author, and program officer in environmental in the environment at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. And she is literally 
breaking it down. So I know this is the great time when you're listening to the podcast. You can actually rewind some of these things <laughs> to hear Marilyn. Uh, you can be like, take so if you miss something, this is the this this the advantage uh to that. Um you know, Marilyn, I actually uh ventured in like you as a, as an author and <laughs> trying to write. Um, try to write an article recently on Brown Finance, and it was some difficulty in publishing uh, that article. The, uh, the article that just came out is called The Language of Brown Finance uh, in Climate Finance is Racist. Uh, simply, if you cannot hear the problem with the term Brown Finance yourself, then, uh, you know, read that article so that I can explain. Simply, I just believe if you knew better, you would do better, as they say, and, uh, in, in, in certain communities. But my question really is that finance leaders and climate campaigners are increasingly referring to the carbon-intensive industries that are causing the climate crisis, climate crisis as brown finance. We sometimes even hear fossil fuel divestment activists chanting, down with the brown, down with the brown, down with the brown. And so somehow brown is juxtaposed to green. The first is bad, the latter is good. And herein lies the problem. The climate finance movement is evoking a racist framework in the language of brown. So, you know, Marilyn, how is the term Brown finance being used in your opinion? Um, why shouldn't it be used? How can we change this language? How do you feel about your colleagues using the term brown finance? What's your personal experience and, and pursuing what you're passionate about so much in, in changing what seems to be just this hostility, um, using language towards people of color? Yeah, it's just baffling. I even before we we jumped on this particular call, I was on a call where it was used brown finance, and it's always mm. it's a neg- it's the problem. It's always a negative thing. It's something that we don't want more of. We're trying to literally destroy it or kill it. Right? Think about how problematic that is. We want to kill something anchored in the color of brown. That mm. just that just doesn't sit right. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, on, on so many levels, I and it really just illustrates how the movement has not been the climate. And, and I'm referring to the climate finance movement, in particular, sustainable finance, sustainable investing has not been inclusive of brown people and black people, because I think this flag would have been raised a long time ago had it been. And I hear it a lot in climate finance circles. And it is something that. I, I find troubling. And it's it's also, um, it's draining to be the person each time to say, wait a minute, stop. I think we need to evolve that language and change it. And, you know, to use a, a, a dirty, clean framework or a green, gray framework, as I think the UN has done on a few occasions, um, because really people identify with being black and being brown. And we, we can't solve climate change without them, right? Um, and so we need to be mindful of the things we refer to um, and the things we want to destroy and kill and want no more of, right? And so I just think it's another way of how language um, is overlooked, but yet it is, it is so important. Um, if you look at the, the U.S. Census 
and how people are referred to. You know, you see changes in language and you see people's preferences and how they want to be referred to um, reflected in that. And I think we have to honor that um, there are people who identify as brown globally. You know, I was just on a call with um, a team at Morningstar and they were walking through um, a new framework that they're developing, but it's based on the e, some EU draft legis- legislation around green finance and brown finance. And this team of people at Morningstar, I would say about a half are Indian and who identify as brown mm-hmm. and um, how problematic it must be for them to have to work on that kind of framework coming from the you know draft EU legislation. And so... Um, and definitely across Europe, there are people who identify as black and brown. And so I, I just think it's, it's very problematic and that it's not just a word, right? It's, it has meaning. It does. Um, and it has life. And unfortunately, you said when you're talking about killing the brown or down with the brown, that, that speaks um, a lot and to many, to many ways to different people very differently. And bottom line, too, I was happy to see that once that article went out, and for those, you can check it out, uh, Common Dreams. And we had a hard time, to tell you, let me be very clear. I'm, I'm a leader in this climate movement, and it wasn't like the doors were open <laughs> uh, to publish that article in a number of places. So shout out Common Dreams um, for being a place to um, hold that. But I would suggest everyone... Um, within the climate finance movement, definitely um, go and check out the, that article. It's called "The Language of Brown Finance in the Climate." In the climate finance is simply racist. Um, so, you know, one of the things. Speaking of language, I know for you, Marilyn, that you speak a number of languages, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, obviously you're doing in a great fashion here with English. You also. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> speak French, you speak Spanish, and you speak Mandarin. Um, so being able to speak these languages, and I know there are people who are listening to this show literally from all over the world. Like that's why I see one of the amazing things of this 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 platform that is now people are people are tuning in because they simply just see people of color having conversations about climate. It's not to, I don't think it's that revolutionary, but I think it's just a place where this is just comfortable. But in that, in that, what's your, um, what are your thoughts about what's going on with the climate finance movement internationally? And how are you able to bridge the cultural divides and apply systems to level the thinking to some of the most local of these concerns? So a few recent updates, um, you know, there you could break down finance into debt and equity. You can break it down in terms of you know capital pools. You can break it down in terms of uh, public and private. And I think the the term climate finance, you know, it it has come mostly from the public finance world, the multilateral development banks, and commitments that countries are making to you know finance um, large infrastructure, uh, large green infrastructure, and that has evolved to really include all finance, including private finance, which is where I focus. Um, and and for that, um, we see we've seen a lot of movement um, in ESG, environmental, social governance, investing, sustainable investing, impact investing, 
SRI, right? Socially responsible investing. There are all of these words that are getting at similar things. Um, and that is the, the increase in the trends are, are positive across the globe. Um, what we've seen of late, um, you know, some leadership coming from the European Union side. So um, the European Union just proposed an, an, a, a bill, um, 750 billion euros uh, to fund uh, recovery from uh, the coronavirus crisis. Um, that will have green strings attached, so to speak, uh, with a, at least a quarter of the funding set aside for climate action. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, a quote unquote green deal um, in the European Union context, which um, the nature of financing there, there's a lot that's just driven by regulatory policy, you know, very, very top down uh, from Brussels to um, the system, including all the public pensions that are available in, in Europe. Um, in China, we're um, we're in a year where the Chinese government is um, now developing their 14th five-year plan. So they do their macro planning in five-year chunks, and um, that is expected to be a very uh, green document, a uh, green strategy. Um, you know, President Xi has a ecological civilization framework for the country. Now the you know, tension, like other places, will be between a lot of the incumbent infrastructure, particularly around coal, and um, the newer um, infrastructure around wind and solar and uh, storage and geothermal and all of the, the other interventions. Um, it tends to be, you know, in the Chinese context, a lot of the industries that are um, sustainable and uh, climate friendly are among the privately owned enterprises, the POEs, whereas a lot of the incumbents, uh, more polluting industries are state-owned enterprises, SOEs. So, um, you know, I, I tend to encourage the restructuring so that we have in China um, SOEs that are, are green, you know, national champions of, of, in, of, of green infrastructure. I think that'll be important um, for the, the workforce there. Um, and we also have an alignment, you know, in terms of definitions, what can be considered green and not in terms of green bonds in China, aligning with green bond definitions in Europe. And hopefully that will also make it uh, in the U.S. So so there's there's that movement globally that's in the right, I guess I would say the slope is pointing in the right direction, but the slope is not steep enough. So the the acceler- we have to accelerate essentially. Um we know that we have about 550 billion USD flowing globally annually to climate solutions, but we need at least 1.5 trillion. Uh, and that's, that's only for energy, not to mention agriculture and transportation. So we're, we need trillions uh, globally and annually. And I think what's happened in the past few months is we realized that actually it's not a lot of money. You know, we, we've dropped trillions and trillions, uh, you know, in the drop of a hat recently in the U.S., um, for post-COVID response um, in our own bank account. So we have in the U.S. Um, 12 trillion in our bank accounts. We have 14 trillion in the EU. We have 27 trillion in, in China. Um, so even 1% of that, you know, we're, we've met our goal. So it's not as if we don't have the capital, right? We just need to reorient um, and to have intentionality around where the capital is going. Marilyn, you are exceptional. 
And I just have two more questions, but I just want to say that you are fantastic in the work you're doing regarding climate finance, sustainability. Um, you are, you know, just your background of from being from Princeton and Cambridge, uh, speaking numerous languages, um, is outstanding. But you're also a black woman. And I guess with all of those accolades and all of those letters and being in a position of working at one of the largest foundations and dealing with this issue that's so important for our, not only for our planet, but obviously those of us on the planet. I guess my question to you is, is, is this, um, you know, this moment that we're in, in regards to the movement for black lives, um, affects us all, no matter where we are. And one of the things we've seen, particularly is what was the uh, situation with George Floyd and the words he said, I can't breathe, and which was the same words that Eric Garner said six years earlier. And I guess I want to ask you this question, Marilyn. In your position, from your background, from where you're sitting, what does I can't breathe mean to you? I think I can't breathe is, is a summary for why I do this work, why we do this work. It is that common theme that we find throughout our financial system, throughout the root causes of climate change, throughout systemic racism, police brutality, you know, all the ways that we can't breathe. And I think that what we're, we're trying to achieve on the solution side is enabling breath, which seems so, it's so basic. Just to, you know, as human beings, we just want to breathe. Us being able to breathe means the capital is no longer financing this carbon intensive infrastructure, no longer financing fossil fuels, uh, diesel trucks, all of those things. And it's financing regenerative agriculture, zero emissions trucks, electric vehicles, um, renewable energy storage, all of those things are what en enables us to breathe, right? So if you are a bank, if you are an asset manager and you're not align aligning with that, then you are perpetuating racism. It's not just, um, these, things, these things are very important. The number of people of color, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color on your boards, in your senior leadership, throughout your staff is critical. But if you as a bank and asset manager are continuing to finance an economy that enables us or disables us from breathing, then you are racist and you are perpetuating racism. And for all of us, all the people of color that are listening, people, all of the allies that are listening, if we are banking with those banks and have our money in those funds, we're also contributing to our own destruction. We have to get out and align. So that's what I can't breathe means to me. That's powerful. That's very, very powerful. This is my last question then. So knowing all you know, knowing all you know, um, our parents, you know, in the 20th century, they fought for equality. But now we are not only fighting for equality, 
but we're fighting for existence. Um, so this last question is simply, what keeps you hopeful and can we win? What keeps me hopeful? I think the solutions, the disruptors, the challengers, the those that are part of redesigning the system and bringing concrete opportunities for us to breathe and to uh, thrive and um, to benefit from a new from this new green economy. Um, all of those things provide a source of hope. Um, I think we can win, and to do so, we have to act. I think there's. Um, I think the time for talk is, is over, and we have to set concrete goals and act towards those goals. And we're already so far behind. Um, we need to reduce emissions by, you know, eight to fifteen percent year on year right now um, to twenty fifty, um, and we're not there. So we have to accelerate what we're doing, and it's it's all hands on deck. So I am, I am keeping the hope alive. I think we can win, but it's going to take that action. And, and the, the capital and the money is the core to that action, which supports the, you know, the policymaking and the advocacy. And Marilyn, if folks want to find you or get one of your books or read more of what you're doing, uh, how can they do that? So they can find me on Twitter at Wait Marilyn, W-A-I-T-E, Marilyn. Um, my book can be found um, on any main online bookstore um, since we're in COVID um, times, sustainability at work, <laughs> careers that make a difference. And my website has a lot of information, MarilynWaite.com. Thank you so much. That was Marilyn Waite, an amazing person, a sustainable business expert, an author, and the program officer in environment at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100, think 100, think 100, think 100.